Jesus, uh, we really do believe that you're the truth, uh, but we need, we need help even believing that. And so would you come now and reveal yourself to us in the most precious way through your word. Uh, as we dive in, we need help. We need help understanding it. We need help um, seeing it. We need help hearing it. We need, um, just like we cried out and sang out, um, we need the truth to be revealed to us. So would you do that now through your word as we come to it. We pray now for the one who you have called to teach your word this morning, that you forgive him his sins, for they are many. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. Uh, welcome uh, to Midtown 12 South Live Service. Again, welcome Midtown Home Churches. Thanks for opening up your homes. Thanks for uh, bringing the church into your living rooms or to your back porches uh, to watch these services together and not do it alone. Um, and welcome to those in real life. Uh, hi, good to see you. Uh, we've said this kind of each week, but you may, you know, if you've come to a couple live services and haven't got into one and then maybe watched online or missed one online, it, I know that sometimes the sermon series, you can kind of go, where are we and what are we doing? And so just a brief recap, uh, in September, a couple months ago, we studied uh, this biblical idea, this biblical reality of what does it mean that we are a priesthood of believers, that the New Testament um, says that we're a royal priesthood, and that's built on the Old Testament declaration that if you belong to God, God has made you, he has called you to be a kingdom of priests, that God's people are priests to the world. So we talked about that identity for five weeks in Scripture, that, that what does it mean that believers are priests to the world? Well, since then, we've been asking the question, what does it mean that as priests, what is the answer to the question, how then should priests live in the world? If we are priests, or since we are priests, what does that mean that, that, our, that our lives should look like? What does that mean that our, our thoughts should be like? What does that mean how we should move and groove to be, to be priests in the world? And so to answer that question, we've been, we've been looking at the Ten Commandments. Here's God's guide for how to live in the world. Here's how you will be priest to the world is, is through obedience to this law. But we're kind of just skipping rocks over the Ten Commandments. We're using the Ten Commandments to actually get us to the heart of the commandment through an interaction with Jesus. So as priests, how should we live, study the Ten Commandments? We're going to study the Ten Commandments by way of interactions with Jesus. Okay, so I hope that makes perfect sense. You're probably not, but we're going to roll with that for now. That, that there's this question being asked as priest, and we want to get to the heart of the question being asked by studying Jesus, who actually, through his life and death and resurrection, gives us the power to actually obey these commandments as priests in his kingdom. Okay? So I hope that just clears it all up for you. So we're going to read uh, two passages right now. We're going to read a, one of the commandments, and then we're going to read a New Testament interaction or story from Jesus that gets at the heart of that commandment. So, Exodus chapter 20, if you want to turn there or, or it'll be on the screen. Exodus chapter 20, this is the Ten Commandments. It says this, this is the Ninth Commandment. It says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And then, skipping way ahead in the New Testament, John chapter 18, starting in verse 28, says this. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas, as the high priest, to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, 
Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come to the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover, so do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. This is the word of the Lord. So before we dive into that story of Jesus' trial, kind of trial, not really a fair trial, but Jesus' trial before Pilate, let's talk about the commandment just briefly. The commandment, the ninth commandment of the Ten Commandments, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. It's pretty straightforward. Um, Don't lie. (laughs) Tell the truth. Be a people, my people, the Lord is saying, my people in the world are to be a people that are marked by their integrity, that are marked by their truth-telling, that are marked by their not-lyingness. That's one of the marks of my people. What's interesting, though, is to, is to study that or to try to understand this commandment in light of when it was given to the Israelites. The Israelites were fresh out of slavery in Egypt. They're on their way to the promised land. They're becoming a nation. This Decalogue, this Ten Commandments, is actually what was meant to guide their entire social and cultural system. If you will obey these Ten Commandments, Israel, you, you will actually have a great culture. You will, you will be a wonderful nation. This should guide your entire uh, world as a nation, as a people of God in the Promised Land. So it's interesting to think about, okay, why is not lying an important part of a nation becoming a nation? Why is that like a fabric for a nation? Why do they need to, to not bear false witness if they're going to be a healthy, flourishing, beautiful nation? Well, for a society in a judicial sense, in a, in, a, in a cultural sense that handled just about all of their court cases were based on witness testimony. And so this is an integral part, not just of their neighborly interactions, this is an integral part of, hey, is justice going to reign in our society? Is justice going to reign in our nation? Because in a society where the court system depends almost solely on witness testimony, hey guys, you need to tell the truth or injustice and oppression will reign. If if people are bearing false witness in the court system, no one will get a fair trial and justice will not happen. So this is important for the people of God. We see this even in the modern day. We can even appreciate this in the modern day. If you've seen the movie or at least heard the story or heard heard bits of the story, the movie Just Mercy came out last year. It's beautiful. Story of Brian Stevenson who started... Uh, the Equal Justice Initiative, EJI. It's a beautiful organization. Give them all of your money. But that he, it, it's the story of how he starts this organization. And he's, he's kind of fresh out of law school, and he wants to basically defend people on death row that he doesn't believe got a fair trial. 
He goes down to Alabama and he meets this man on death row, this inmate, Walter McMillan, Johnny D, they call him as his nickname. Johnny D is on death row waiting the death penalty in Alabama. And the reason he's on death row, his entire case against him hinged on one witness testimony. And Brian Stevenson, the lawyer, finds out that that one witness testimony that said that Johnny D killed this white woman was the testimony of another man on death row who was able to get a lesser sentence if he would just say, yeah, I saw that man do it. So this man, this innocent man, Johnny D, is on death row all because of one false witness against him. And so Brian Stevenson, you know, tries to unpack it, and he's fighting against the injustice of a false testimony, of lying in court by this false testimony. He gets, he gets Johnny D off of death row. It's a beautiful, cried many times. It's a wonderful movie. But we see in that, we go, hey, uh, truth matters. Like, people's lives can be on the line if people aren't committed to telling the truth, especially in court. So it matters for a court system. It matters for justice. It matters for those that are oppressed that maybe have experienced the injustice of having people lie against them. But it doesn't just matter for a judicial system. The commandment of do not bear false witness, the commandment of do not lie, also applies to our everyday interaction with people that are our neighbors and ourselves. The Lord is saying in this commandment, my people, my kingdom of priests, my, my, my nation, the people who call me their own God are to be marked by integrity. They're to be marked by people who are truth tellers and who do not lie. And I know that even when I say that, that we, we, we want, um, or that, that uh, not lying is a mark of God's people. I know that, gener- I mean, I saw a lot of you, a lot of you guys are nodding your head like, yes, truth matters. I even saw some of y'all at home nodding your head, like truth matters, right? We're excited about, yes, truth needs to reign. I don't know if you've been living under a rock for the last two weeks, but people have some questions about the truth when it comes to the election. Now, I'm not even talking about what side you may fall on that. I'm talking about everybody wants to get the, for the truth to come out or for the truth to stay out wherever you fall. And so the truth, everyone's saying, can we please get the truth? Because truth matters. But it doesn't just matter in, in elections. It matters in marital conflict. How many, often, how many times in marital conflict or significant other conflict or roommate conflict do, do, does, the, does the statement go like this? I just, that's just not how it happened, right? I just, the truth of this matters, right? We're arguing and, and the truth just needs to be spoken. How often do we want the truth when it comes to dating apps, right? I'm like swiping right. I'm not. You are, some of you. Um, swiping right on, on looking to go on dates and I just want to know the truth about this person. Is this person who they say they are? Can I trust this profile? What am I going to get? I need the truth to reign about who this person is. And certainly like we just said in the Just Mercy, the Brian Stevenson, EJI, truth needs to reign in false incriminations. And so we, we all want this commandment to be something that everybody follows. Everybody's going, yes, truth matters. But if it were just that simple, if everyone were a fan of this commandment and it was just that simple to just go, yes, let's just all you know, own the truth, why do we have a commandment against lying? <laughs> like it should speak to us, it should imply something to us that the Lord who gives the 10 laws for his people and the 10 commandments, that one of them that's integral, you shall not lie, you shall not bear false testimony, you shall be a people that tells the truth, he had to give a commandment because we don't naturally do it. As much as all of us were going, yes, truth matters, we need a commandment to tell us it's not okay to lie because we're prone to not tell the truth. We're prone to, to bear false witness against our neighbor. 
So we turn to a New Testament story for a people that are nodding their heads that we want the truth, but also for people who are under a commandment that has to command us not to lie. We're going to study this New Testament story that centers around the truth, and maybe more importantly, that centers around the power of the truth. We'll talk about that. So the scene that was read for us in John chapter 18 is from Jesus' trial. This is just a few hours before he's going to be crucified. He's on trial, kind of. It's not really a fair trial, but he's on trial with the Roman ruler of the entire region, Pontius Pilate, I used to call him. Pontius Pilate. He is the, he is the governor. He is, he is Caesar's representative in this entire region. He is the most powerful man in the area. Governor is, is, is a modern equivalent, but not even so. I mean, he, he had a lot of power. And he was, his job was to keep things settled and at peace in the region where he was overseeing so that Caesar didn't get word back across the Mediterranean that things were, there was unrest in Pilate's region. So Jesus gets before Pilate, and we'll talk about Pilate in a little bit. But at the end of this interaction with Pilate, we get a question from Pilate. And the question from Pilate frames the entire story. At the end of this interaction, at the very end of the story, Pilate asks this question, what is truth? And that question is what is going to be our guide, because it's the question that Pilate's asking. It's also the question that everyone else in the story is asking. See, we can learn a lot about the truth and the quest for truth if we spend a few moments studying the Jewish leaders in this story. The Jewish leaders in this story, they've dragged Jesus, they've beaten Jesus, they've, they've literally arrested Jesus um, unjustly, unfairly, and they've dragged him before Pilate, and they have so bent the truth, they have so stretched the truth against Jesus, some people call that lying, when you bend the truth and stretch the truth, they've so done that against Jesus that they now have an ear with Pilate, the governor who could kill him. They've had to do so much breaking of the ninth commandment to get Jesus to this point that they are completely unaware of their bearing false witness against him. Yes, Jesus has proclaimed to be the king of the Jews. Yes, Jesus has proclaimed to be the son of God. Yes, Jesus has claimed to be the Messiah. But please understand this. No one in Roman authority cared what, religion, what religious folks were doing with their time, as long as the religious folks kept the peace. So the fact that this man named Jesus is running around claiming to be the son of God and the Messiah of the Jews, Pilate does not care about that. As long as the, 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 the people who are following this new Messiah keep things down a little bit. Let there be no revolution. Let there be no uprising from this. So what the Jews have done with Jesus is they've taken Jesus' very biblical and theological claims as the Son of God, as the Messiah, and they've had to twist them and turn them against Jesus and make them very political statements so that they can get an ear with Pilate. Pilate does not care if Jesus claims to be the Messiah. He does care if there's a kingdom on the rise and that kingdom wants to overthrow anybody. So the Jews are literally breaking the ninth commandment. They are bearing false witness in a court trial system to get an ear with Pilate. And while lying about Jesus, while making Jesus out to be this insurrectionist and this political fanatic, while they are doing that, listen to what we're told about them. Okay? Please keep in your minds that they are guilty of the ninth commandment. They are causing radical injustice to happen against Jesus. Listen to what we're told in the opening line of the story. Verse 28. They led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled 
but could eat the Passover. Okay, so on the day before Passover, which happened weekly, the day before Passover, every Jew that wanted to participate in Passover had ceremonial laws that they had to keep and uphold if they wanted to be able to participate. You couldn't be unclean ceremonially and participate in Passover, which was a big deal. So let me, let me paint for you this picture. The, these Jewish leaders do not enter Pilate's house because he's a Gentile and they could bump into something in his house that would make them unclean and then they wouldn't be able to participate in the Passover the very next day. So they are concerned about becoming ceremonially unclean by walking into this Gentile's house while they are acting unjustly towards Jesus and breaking the ninth commandment. Like, oh gosh, I hope I don't bump into some flower pot in Pilate's house. That would make me unclean. Heaven forbid I'm unclean while I'm brutally hating and wanting this man to be murdered over here and I'm willing to twist the truth to make it happen. Like, is something off on that to you that they, they would be that concerned? Pilate, thanks. It's great to see you. We can't come in because, ooh, you know, we might do something that would make us unclean. Like the thing we're doing right now. <laughs> Like the thing that we're actively doing in front of you, which is beating this man and not giving this man a trial and bearing false witness against him to you, that doesn't make us unclean, right? Because we're good on that, but we don't want to bump into anything in your house. They're going to this Gentile palace under the guise of total righteousness, under the guise of total um, innocence, while they're falsely imprisoning and accusing a man that they want to murder. So if you don't see anything else in this story as we begin this conversation, please at least see this. Please notice the hypocrisy of these men, the hypocrisy that comes once people have decided what the truth is that they have decided is true. Their commitment to finding their own truth and to living out their own truth made them the worst of hypocrites. See, when we've made up our mind that we get to decide what's true, we will deceive ourselves, even sometimes knowingly deceive ourselves, to hold on to the thing that we have decided is true, and the moment we decide that we get to be the ones who are going to give the final verdict on what is true and not true in a situation or about ourselves or about other people, we immediately become hypocrites. See, we live in an age where deciding what your own truth is, is the highest truth. Like we live in an age where no one's allowed to have an absolute truth and that is an absolute truth for most of us. But that doesn't just feed into um, like, like religion or, or philosophy. That actually bleeds its way out into our own day to day where we literally say without even thinking about it, I'm gonna do what I wanna do because I get to decide what I wanna do because I get to decide what's truth. We have it plastered on our wall over here. It gets Instagrammed and Snapchatted all the time. It just says, believe. Believe. I don't know in what, but just believe, I guess. And so the people come and snap shots of our, of, our, of our wall, and we need to start charging them, right? Because it is all the time. But this, this idea that just, that just belief is all that matters. Just believe in something. And as long as you believe in something, as long as you've decided what's true for you, no one is allowed to infringe on that. 
And I'm not talking about getting philosophical. I'm not talking about even getting metaphysical or even how we got to this moment in modern history. That if you, if you pull the thread back through the Enlightenment and even back into the Reformation, we could talk about philosophically how did we get to a point where everybody gets to decide their own truth? How did we arrive here as a culture and as a Western society? I'm not talking about that. I'm talk, we, could, we could have that conversation. It's fascinating. But in a, in a postmodern, post-enlightened era, would, would we be willing to just ask this question, is it possible that in our own demand and quest for truth on our own terms, is it possible that we're unfit to do that? Is it possible that we are uncertified truth finders? And that the demand that we have that I get to decide my own truth, I get to decide what's true for me, I get to be the arbiter on what is and isn't true in my world, maybe is dangerous for us? Like we're not meant to do that? but we're all buckling under the weight of having to carry the pressure of having to decide what is true and best for us? And is it possible that like these Pharisees, once we decide that we get to decide what truth is with no accountability, we immediately become hypocrites? So what we see happening with a group of men who has decided this is true to us and we don't care what anybody says about that, including our own religious law, the ninth commandment, they, they're knowingly breaking the ninth commandment. It doesn't matter because this is true. This man, this man is dangerous. We have to go after him. Don't want to become ceremonially unclean, though. Who cares about the ninth commandment? Don't want to become unclean. Is it possible that our demand to decide what truth is actually makes us blind to what that actually does to us? See, because the truth, according to Scripture, is that we are not very good truth-tellers. <laughs> we need a commandment to tell us not to tell lies because that's what we're prone to do. We actually need the ninth commandment to hold us accountable to what it means to be truth-tellers. Because the Bible knows the power of the truth. And again, not in the philosophical sense, not in even the like... Um, and we'll get to Pilate's question a little bit about what is truth. We'll talk about that. I'm not even talking about in the ethereal sense or the metaphysical sense, the power of truth. I'm talking about the Bible because the Bible knows you, because, because the God who wrote the Bible made you. You were wired to have the truth and your identity be inextricably tied together. The truth will tell you who you are, and we are all finding our identity based on what truth we believe about ourselves. Who you are, the truth about you, is what defines you. And so the danger is when you start getting to be the one who decides what is true about you, means that you are now also saying, I get to decide who I am. Your sense of self, your sense of worth, your sense of security, all comes from an identity that is rooted in what you believe to be true. Practical, you know, surface level example of this is like you are the, the child of Johnny and Sally. You are your parents' child. That is a true thing about you. You get an identity from having those people as your parents. You also get an identity from the job that you do. That's a true thing about you. How you're employed, what you do helps define you. How you're gifted, how you're wired, what your Enneagram number is, what your disc assessment is. All those things that are true things about you builds this identity of who you believe yourself to be because the truth is inextricably tied to who we believe we are. So if the truth about us is where we find our identity, 
if the truth is where we find our identity and we're always taking as much truth about us as we can to help us find an identity, if all of that's true, then you better believe we will find ways to not tell the whole truth about ourselves. We're way too fragile and way too fickle. Our identities are way too fragile and way too fickle. And so we will find ways to declare something that's true about us to try to find an identity that is certain and sure. But we will also find ways to not tell the truth about us. So we end up doing things like this. We end up stretching the truth from time to time. Because stretching the truth about us gives us an identity that makes us feel a certain way about ourselves. Or we will stretch the truth about other people to give them an identity, which gives us an identity of someone who can give them an identity. <laughs> Lost yet? So here's one, way, here's one way we stretch the truth. We do this slightly, we do this vastly, we do this kind of everywhere on the spectrum. Here's one subtle way that I find people do this from time to time, and sometimes I do it, okay? But here's one way. Do you ever find yourself stretching the truth a little bit in ways like this? You tell people, man, I had to get up so early yesterday, I got up at like 5.30, when really you got up at like 6.15? The laughers are the guilty ones. And do you ever find yourself telling people like, man, I just, my, I, the AC on my car went out and it cost me like $2,000 to fix when really it cost you like 1200 or 1850 But like stretching it just a little bit makes you f- feel a little bit like you suffer more than people or you're stronger than people or you're a victim more than people. And so that gives you an identity. If I can stretch the truth a little bit, they'll think something about me and that, that truth will give me an identity. Why do we do that? Because it will give us a truth that I want to believe about me or that I want you to believe about me and that truth that gives me an identity. We also stretch the truth in what we call around here at Midtown narrative writing. Whenever there's conflict between parties, every time, without fail, both parties are writing a story. They're they're meaning making out of that conflict. They're writing a story about the situation and about the other party. When you're narrative writing, when you're giving meaning to the situation, do you ever find yourself painting yourself in the best possible, most innocent light in the conflict and painting the other person in not so much the same way? Do you ever find yourself that when, when you are writing the narrative, the truth you're telling is, this is how I'm doing it and this is what I've done, but you are so guilty on the other side. We do that because that truth that we've made, that narrative we've written that is now the truth, makes us feel a certain way, makes us feel secure. It gives us an identity that makes us feel something or worth something. We do this in gossip, too. Gossip is is so subtle because gossip usually uses like a shred of truth and then it stretches it out. But I'm talking with my friend about someone we both don't like or something we see in someone and, and we may take a shred of truth about them and stretch it out and make it the truth about them and it's not even the identity that we wanna give them. It's doesn't this feel good between us? Doesn't this give us a little bit of intimacy that we see the same truth over there? We do this in all kinds of ways and this is all centering around and revolving around the reality That the truth about us, the truth we tell ourselves about ourselves, it's where we find our identity. And so would you dare to be honest for a moment, to actually tell the truth for a moment? Would you dare to admit for a moment, have the courage to admit for a moment, that deep down, deep in here, the real truth about you scares the spit out of you? 
And so it would be terrifying, it would be mortifying to have to slow down long enough to acknowledge that all the other narratives I've written about me or about you and all the other truths I've told myself about me actually isn't what I know to be most true. That's terrifying. It's like the idea when someone gets so excited to move to a new city and they're like, this new city's gonna be the greatest, it's gonna be the best, and, and it's so much better than Nashville where you live, and it's gonna be awesome, and there's better community there, and there's, there's all these better, better things there. And then they get there, and they celebrate it, and they put it on Instagram, and everything's awesome, and everything, nothing is going wrong for them, and they get there, and they're still just as miserable, right? And so it's, it's, this, it's this painful moment of this is my truth, this new city is going to do everything for me that I wanted it to do, and then you get there and you're still miserable. They will never post that on Instagram. They will never acknowledge that their new reality is just as bad as their old reality because too much is at stake. And that's, that's the inverse of what I'm talking about here. Could we all slow down long enough to go, hey, the new house, the house that I built myself that I thought would satisfy me, the identity I've given myself for my truth isn't working for me. I thought it would. It's not working. I'm still just as miserable. I'm still, I'm still me. But it's easier just to keep lying to myself or about myself or lie to you or about you. And we see here in the Jews, that was a, that was a long off-ramp to get back onto the story to say, the Jewish leaders are showing this. This is what happens when we are so committed to our own truth and our own version of the truth. We become radical hypocrites and we don't even realize we're doing it. They are so blinded to the fact that they are guilty as sin. They are already undefiled for Passover, but they can't see it. We've got to stay outside of Pilate's house because that could, that could make us unclean. They're unwilling to tell the truth about themselves and tell the truth about Jesus. It makes them hypocrites. Us too. And then we come to Pilate, Pilate and Jesus. And with all of this false testimony being born against Jesus, please, please realize what's going on here. The power of the ninth commandment is to protect a judicial system, protect victims of oppression and injustice who have false witness born against them. And Jesus is the victim of false testimony, it, like happening in real time. False testimony from the Jewish leaders against Jesus. He's dragged before Pilate and Pilate asks him, are you king of the Jews? What they're saying, is it true? Is this testimony true or not? And the reason why Pilate needs to know that, Pilate does not care about the theology of Jesus, I promise. Pilate is not interested in the sonship of Jesus in terms of is he, is he the only begotten son of God the Father? He is not asking a theological question. He's asking a political question. Are you starting a kingdom? Because a kingdom means, a, or a king means a kingdom, and a kingdom means followers, and followers means an uprising. And part of my job as the, the governor of this region is to squash all uprisings. I need to know, Jesus, are you guilty of being a political person? Are you guilty of starting a revolution that, I, that is going to cause me some problems? Pilate's job, part of it, was to squash out competing kingdoms in the area. And Jesus answers Pilate in verse 36. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. In other words, Pilate, my kingdom doesn't consist of what you can see. My kingdom is not made from the same stuff that your kingdom's made from. 
Because if it did, my followers would be here beating down your door and rescuing me. And I would, I would not be allowing this to happen if my kingdom were from this world, if my kingdom were like your kingdom. But Pilate, my kingdom is actually invisible to you. That's what Jesus is saying. Please don't miss. This, this is a massive statement from Jesus and his followers need to understand what he's saying and what he's not saying. It's an unbelievable statement that Jesus just made. Jesus said, my kingdom is from a totally different place. My kingdom is from a different stratosphere and a different dimension. And Pilate, if my kingdom were made up of the same stuff that this world's made up of, then this would not be happening right now. My, my followers would, would, would have taken you over by now. But that's not my kingdom. My kingdom, Pilate, is invisible. And here's where Jesus gets so masterfully brilliant. He's saying to Pilate, hey, Pilate, the kingdom that you're afraid of, you can't even see. That my kingdom is actually an invisible kingdom. So much so that, Pilate, the kingdom may be happening and you may not even be able to notice that it's happening. That Jesus just said that he's the king of a kingdom, that if you don't have eyes to see it or you're not willing to see it, you will not believe that it's there. Jesus alludes to this several other times. In the Gospels, Matthew 13 is a famous kingdom parables chapter. It's all about the kingdom of God. And there's, there's a thread in Matthew 13. He tells a lot of parables in Matthew 13 all about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is like, the kingdom of heaven is like, some of them are really short, like two sentences. And a couple of the analogies, the parables that Jesus gives about his kingdom in Matthew 13 is the same thing he just said to Pilate. One of them he says is, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven in bread. This, this ingredient in bread in a loaf that you may not even know is there, you literally maybe won't even be able to see it, but it infects the whole loaf and changes everything about it. But my kingdom is like the leaven. You won't be able to see it unless you know that it's there. But you won't believe that it's there unless someone tells you that it's there because you won't be able to see it on your own. He says the same thing about, uh, he says the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Not the Faith is like a mustard seed. That's a different passage. When he says, my kingdom is like a mustard seed, mustard seeds are like microscopic, like you can't even see them. But they end up blooming into this enormous tree. And, you go, and he's saying, hey, my kingdom is like this little thing that you wouldn't even know is there, but it will change everything. It will actually explode and be something that you won't be able to deny one day. But on the surface, at first, you won't even be able to tell that it's there and that anything's happening like leaven or like a mustard seed. That's what he's saying to Pilate. My kingdom is the kingdom of unseen things. It's invisible unless you have eyes to see it. And Jesus is saying to Pilate, my kingdom, Pilate, is so hidden from your eyes. My kingdom is advancing in front of you and you have no idea that it's happening. He's even saying to Pilate, and this is even more audacious of Jesus to say this to Pilate. He's even telling Pilate when he says, my kingdom's not of this world, bro. Like, you don't even know this is happening. He's actually saying, it's happening right now, Pilate. It's happening in front of you. Something in my kingdom massively is happening right now, and you don't even see it. Like, hey, hey Pilate, you're about to crucify me, and that's going to be where my kingdom is born. But you don't see it. My kingdom's happening before you, and you have no clue that it's going on. So he says that to Pilate. My invisible kingdom that I'm the king of, Pilate, is happening before you, and you can't see it. So Pilate's confused or he doesn't care about that. He's going, yeah, yeah, okay. So you said the word kingdom. Are you a king? That's what he says in the very next line. So you are a king? Again, Pilate only wants to know politically, what do I have to do here to squash this? 
And Jesus says in verse 37, so wonderfully ambiguously, two adverbs in a row, wonderfully ambiguously, Jesus says, Pilate says, so you're a king, and Jesus says, you say I'm a king. <laughs> it's like, sometimes Jesus is infuriating. It's like, is that a yes or a no? Well, Pilate, you just said I'm a king. That doesn't work well in like marital arguments. Let me tell you what you just said. No. So he goes, well, you said I'm a king. And then, and then, he, and then he says to, to Pilate, he goes, you said I'm a king. And for this reason, he kind of changes the subject. For this reason, Pilate, back to my invisible kingdom, for this reason I have come to the world. I came to testify about the truth. And all my followers listen to the truth. My kingdom is a kingdom of truth. And my kingdom is a kingdom of truth tellers and truth listeners. Pilate is trying to see what the heck is going on with this man. Are you a king? And Jesus gives the ambiguous answer. I came to bear witness about the truth and my entire kingdom is here to do the same. And again, Pilate is just, all the Pilate, Pilate's scrambling. He's going, okay, I don't need the, the philosophy lesson, Jesus. I just need to know, are you here to overthrow me? <laughs> Please answer the question. And then Jesus gives the truth thing. Came to testify about the truth. My followers do the same. And then Pilate picks up on one word, truth. And he goes, what is truth? And that moment, I, I, like, I wish we could go there with me in your imaginations. Like Jesus is standing with this man, Pilate, who's rattled, and there, the Passover's happening, which means hundreds of thousands of people would have been in, uh, in, in, in Jerusalem at the time. There's chaos outside. And this is, this is, this is not looking good for Pilate. He's got a, he, there's a mob outside, and there's a man here who he can't get a read on. And all this is happening. Ask the question, what is truth. And Jesus doesn't answer him. And that question that Pilate asked didn't just echo in the halls of, his, of Pilate's palace that day. Like, what is truth? 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 Right? Because it's just silent. That question has echoed down through the centuries of that it's, it's, one of the most basic and elemental things are questions to ask as human beings. We're all asking that question. What is truth? And Jesus, whose life is on the line, could have so easily, I mean, think about this now. Like, Pilate's giving him a, a, like a, a judicial chance here. He's saying, hey, what is the truth? Jesus could have very righteously, very justifiably said, do you want to know the truth? The truth is, is that those bimbos outside are lying to you. And they're the ones who set this whole thing up. And I'm here as a victim, and the system is falling apart, Pilate, because you're allowing this false witness to be counted against me in this trial that I'm on. And if you really want to know what the truth is, you need to go investigate all the evidence that they've got against me, and you'll find out they're lying to you. And then Jesus would have walked away, scot-free. But Jesus doesn't answer. Why didn't Jesus answer the question? Why didn't Jesus fight for justice in that moment? Why didn't he say, let me tell you what's going on in front of you, Pilate, and let me tell you how you're falling prey to these evil men out there who are hypocrites. What's well, the brilliance and the humility of Jesus is that Jesus' non-answer is the answer. And here's what I mean. Jesus said a few chapters earlier in John chapter 14 that he is the truth. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And so part of Jesus' silence, when, and this, this, I wish we could have seen this moment. 
like in real time. When Pilate says, what is the truth? Jesus doesn't say anything because he's saying, you're looking at him. I'm the answer to your question. But then it goes deeper than that. Not just, I am the truth, but Pilate, you're asking the question, what is the truth? Let me, let me show you what the truth is. The truth is, is that the truth, who's standing here before you, is willfully letting himself be a victim of injustice. The truth, who's standing before you, is letting himself be led to a slaughter, and he's not going to defend himself. The truth that's before you is actually going to walk to the cross and willfully do so for the sake of my kingdom. That's the truth. Remember earlier in the interaction when Jesus said, you know, Pilate says to him, are you king of the Jews? And he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, Pilate, my followers would be beating down your doors right now and getting me out of here. And so here, here's, here's the, the implied opposite of that. When Jesus says, if my kingdom were of this world, then I would, I would be out of here right now. My kingdom's not of this world, and I'm not going anywhere. I'm gonna let you slaughter me. Because that's what my kingdom's about. I'm letting myself be taken advantage of. I'm letting myself be substituted out for a known criminal, Barabbas, that you're about to release. I'm letting myself be the victim of people bearing false witness against me, and I'm willfully doing it. That's the truth. That's why Jesus' silence is the answer to Pilate's question. This is how my invisible kingdom is coming, and this is how my invisible kingdom is being built, is that the leader of the kingdom, the king of that invisible kingdom, is going to let you, Pilate, who I could snap my finger and end you, I'm actually gonna let you crucify me. That's the truth. And crucifixion in those days was a sign for the Romans and for the Jews, it was a sign of being cursed. It's partially why the Jews want to crucify Jesus because these Jewish leaders are so tired of this Messiah claiming Jesus, walking around and doing miracles and getting everybody's attention and having people believe that he is the Messiah. No, 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 no. Crucifixion means being cursed. Messiahs don't get cursed. So a crucified Messiah means we have no more Messiah problem. That's why the Jews want him to be put to death by, by Pilate. Messiahs cannot be crucified in the minds of the Jews. Because crucifixion was a display of being cursed. And here's the truth. Jesus knew that too. That Jesus, the truth, was standing silent before his accusers so that he could become a curse for the members of his kingdom. For the people of his kingdom who don't know how to tell the truth about themselves. He would remove the curse of our bearing false witness against ourselves and against our neighbor. That is the most true thing about you, that the king of the invisible kingdom, the king who knows the most truth about you, became a curse for you. That's the truth. And because he became a curse for you, you are not under the curse of sin anymore. Because Jesus remained silent and did not answer Pilate, because Jesus kept his invisible kingdom quiet in this moment of his trial, now, here's what, here's what Jesus was, was making happen. Here's the, here's the kingdom that was bursting forth into our very reality 2,000 years ago. The truth that you're terrified of people knowing about you cannot be held against you anymore. In fact, the truth deep down that you know about you that terrifies you, guess what? 
Jesus knows all that and more about you, and it didn't stop him from remaining silent before Pilate. He knew. He knew all the things about you that you want no one else to know. He, know all the, he's, he knows all the secrets that you keep. He knows all the real truth about you, and astronomically more, though, more so than, that, than what you know about you. And he still became a curse for you. And the truths about you that you hate about you, those truths now take a back seat to the most true thing about you. The most true thing about members of Jesus' kingdom is that we are ones who have been bought with a price and we belong to Jesus. That's what's most true about you. Not what you believe about you or the truth you declare about yourself or even the truth that other people have given you. The most true thing about you is that the truth, Jesus, was silent on your behalf so that he would become a curse for you, thereby removing the curse over you. And remember that our identity is always tied to the truth about us or what we believe to be the truth about us. So if the most true thing about you is that you have, you have a king who became a curse for you, that's what's most true about you, then that now becomes the bedrock of your identity. This is who I am now. And nothing else can change that. That's why Jesus says in John chapter 8, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Because knowing what's true about you in Christ is the only thing that can set you free. Set you free from the lies you tell about yourself and the lies you tell others about yourself. Set you free from the identities you give yourself because they aren't as real as the ones that are based on what Christ has done for you. That's the most true thing about you. The answer to what is truth is that my Jesus was silent before his accusers so that he would remove the curse from me. 1 John 3 says that though our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts and God knows everything. Meaning, your heart says some nasty things about you. Your heart sits on the judge's seat of your life and your heart joins the chorus of condemning you. That's what 1 John 3 says. Though our hearts condemn us, we know full well what it's like to be in the courtroom of our own minds and to hear our own selves condemn ourselves. But God is greater than our hearts, meaning there's a new judge in the courtroom, and you're not it. The truth is, and here's what the truth says, Jesus became a curse for you and removed all of the stain. You don't get to be the arbiter of what is and isn't true about you anymore. Jesus gets to do that. But though our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts, and God knows everything. And that's actually how we step into, if, if, if we turn back just so briefly to the ninth commandment, do not bear false witness against your neighbor. Be truth tellers. You want to be a truth teller? Do you know the only people in the world that can tell the whole truth are free people? And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. As a free person, we lean into the ninth commandment, and we become truth tellers. Only free people can tell the whole truth about themselves and about their neighbor. Sometimes in love and rebuke, we speak the truth, and sometimes in humility, we, we are able to actually confess and tell the whole truth about ourselves too. But you can't do that unless you're free. But as those that have been set free, we know what's true about us. And as free people, we know what Jesus has done for us. And as free people, we tell the truth about ourselves, about each other, and about our Jesus. So we're going to close in song. And this first song that we're going to sing, it's a beautiful song. I would invite you to stay sitting while you do it. Stay sitting at home, too. Uh, that, that you would let this song be sung over you, and, and you would meditate on it. And here's the heart of the song. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. 
It's this humble acknowledgement of singing out of, I don't want to be the only truth teller in my life anymore. I'm a bad truth teller, and I want the truth of what Jesus has done and who he is to be the thing that, that, that guides me. And all, I'm, I'm, like, I'm laying down my demand to tell my own truth. I'm going to let Jesus tell the truth about me, and I'll do the same. Let's pray. Jesus, guide us now as we um, get still. And sometimes the silence is scary because the truth that may come out, but because of, um, because of what you, the truth, has done and you, the truth, that have set us free, may we not be afraid of the silence and what it may bring out. May we lean into it and sing out in joy that you would take our life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.